Welcome to Insight 2017 with Jeff Wagner, sponsored by Annex Wealth Management, Serta Pro Painters, and Crest Cadillac. Now, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. It's Insight 2017 from the Country Springs Hotel. I have been looking forward to these segments, well, actually, since we booked them. I am a child of Summerfests, as I think many of us are. I can remember going to maybe not the first, but certainly the second or the third. And just like everybody tells stories that they were at the Ice Bowl, I wasn't at the Ice Bowl. I was at Summerfest the night that George Carlin got arrested (laughs) for saying the seven words you can't say on TV or in Milwaukee. We're joined by Summerfest president and CEO Don Smiley and... What, Director of Entertainment, Bob? Is that what the title is? Director, Vice President President of Entertainment, Bob Babish. (laughs) Bob, let let me start with you. 40 years of booking bands, huh? Yeah, 40 years. This will be my 40th Summerfest. How did did it it all come about? I mean, how did you get started doing that? Well, you know, I was working. I I got a job in a record store in town called 1812 Overture. And, I, and they were also the promoter in town, and I had been there for about two days. And the guy who was the runner for their shows, which is the guy who sets up backstage and gets catering and everything, um, his car broke down. So they needed somebody to run for Sha Na Na. Remember that band? Yeah. And uh, so they said, well, you're useless here in a record store because you know nothing. You want to go do that? And they said, sure. So I did that. And they, they said, well, you didn't seem scared. And they said, no, nah, I was studying the entertainment business anyway, the, music, the uh, theater business. And they said, well, okay, you can do both. Cut to the chase, I, was also, I went to work for a company called the Edgewood Agency who was doing some rock shows and pop shows in town. And one day, the, the people who were doing sh- uh, Summerfest at the time, a guy named Joel Gast called me up and said, uh, we're all leaving to start Chicago Fest. And they can't find anybody who, who wants to book the bands down here at Summerfest. This was April of, uh, I think, 76, 77. And uh, so they said, come on down for an interview. And I went down, and the, and the executive director was a guy named Jim Butler. And I sat behind his desk. He walked, and he threw a piece of paper in front of me. It was a contract. And he said, you got till tomorrow to sign that, and, or else you don't get the job. And I've been there ever since. So. <laughs> did you ever think it was going to last for no, years? No, I did not. <laughs> I did not. Now, now, Don, you have an incredibly interesting background. But before Summerfest, um, you, you ran the Florida Marlins baseball. I did. It was... Um that was very rewarding. We brought uh, Major League Baseball to South Florida, and um, that w- we threw out the first pitch in 1993, and we won the World Series in 1997. And before that, you were one of the guys behind Blockbuster. People don't know that. That was I got that opportunity from the from with the same individual, Mr. Wayne Heisinger. Um, we started Blockbuster with 10 stores, and when we sold it to Sumner Redstone with Viacom, uh, we had 3,000 stores. Well, well, when you first came to, to Summerfest, um, you were re- replacing Bo Black, who was certainly an icon, um, and, and Bo had a, a certain approach and a certain way of, of doing business. Yours w- was a little bit different when, when you took over Summerfest. Is that a question? I'm sorry. It's a question mark at the end. You had a, a little bit of a different approach. <laughs> My, our approach right. is, is different, <laughs> albeit, you know, it's just our approach. I mean, well, no, it's not intended to be critical. I mean, it's just I, I think, you know, you, you had a... I think moving Summerfest forward, I, my, my sense was always that you had some I, I, ideas. When I arrived there, there was, a, there was a lot of emphasis put on, did you draw a million people? And this number a million kept popping up, and... 
um, the organization was reporting attendance three or four times a day. And that just struck me as to, geez, there's a lot of emphasis put on that number. And when you deal with a uh, confined area, we deal with 75 acres. I mean, there's only so many, so many people that you can put in that space and make sure that they're serviced properly, that they can park easily, they can get to a restroom, restroom they can get to a stage, they can uh, get to a bar, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I just wanted to scale it back a notch and take the emphasis off of quantity and really focus on quality. And we should be able to make our numbers if we draw about 850,000 uh, people throughout the run of Summerfest. Mm -hmm. um, that would be the second largest city in the state of Wisconsin over 11 days uh, when, when you consider that. So uh, we operate a mega event just like the Daytona 500 or Indianapolis 500 or Kentucky Derby except for national and international television. But everything else that we do um, is the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, ticketing, merchandising, marketing, communications, um, booking talent. Um, it, it, it's, it's the same as those other events. And Bob and I are both blessed to have a great uh, organization uh, mm -hmm. to work with. Everyone's focused on quality. We have a great staff. Sarah Pankeri and Sarah McGuire are here tonight. And uh, they, um, they, they do so much for our company. I mean, we wouldn't be able to do our jobs without our great staff. Don, one of the things that I think is going to be your legacy, and I hate to use the term legacy because I hope you're not going anywhere anytime soon, but has been the, the structural improvements to Summerfest. Now, I, again, some people might look back nostalgically on the Summerfest of the 1970s where you had you know, a bunch of tents and porta-potties and it rained and turned into mud. I, I, maybe it's just a function of getting older. I, I look at the grounds now, the new stages, all the, the, the capital improvements that have been made, and that's certainly been something you've emphasized over the last several years. It's 2017. I mean, if, if you're not improving, if you're not growing, you're just dying. And so uh, when I arrived, this would be my 14th season. So when Just I, a kid. <laughs> he's got 40. <laughs> um, when I arrived, I mean, there, there were some buildings that really needed help, and so we just took a bulldozer to them. We've been building buildings ever since. Uh, it's uh, who, who knew that the late Henry Meyer would found this festival in 1968? It would operate in uh, 35 different locations throughout the city, and in 1970 it would find a permanent home. Uh, who knew that it would grow to be 50 years? We operate in a global business. We compete globally for bands. So you really have to keep up with the infrastructure of the grounds and stages and so on and so Absolutely. forth to, to, to make sure that we're able to sign the Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney and, and all the entire lineup that Bob and his team uh, signed from year to year. So it's a new era. Uh, it's Summerfest presented by American Family right. Insurance now. So that's really a testament to this festival when, when, a, when a big blue chip, blue chip company like that actually puts their name on, on your festival. I mean, that, that really means a lot, along with a long list of sponsors that we have that put their name on stages on our grounds. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about why Summerfest has been so successful when other festivals have sort of fallen off the map. And then, Bob, I want some war stories. So that's coming up. We'll be back with more. You're listening to Insight 2017. Don Smiley, Bob Babish, the Country Springs Hotel.
We're back. It's Inside 2017 from the Country Springs Hotel. I'm Jeff Wagner, joined by Don Smiley and Bob Babish, the 50th anniversary of Summerfest. Gentlemen, if you, if you think back on all the years, there have been large-scale festivals all over the country, all over the world, that have come and have gone. And, and Summerfest is still here. It's growing. It's surviving. It's thriving. What, what is the secret of Summerfest success? Why is Summerfest doing so well when other festivals have failed? I think it's testament to the fans, first of all. And to the, our model is different than Coachella or Bonnaroo or Lollapalooza, um, where those ex, where their tickets are very expensive, and we've been able to keep our t- our most expensive ticket this year is twenty bucks, and if you get there by four uh, four o'clock, it's thirteen dollars, and if you go on the uh, on Summerfest.com, you can find a plethora of ways to g- either get in free or or uh, at a reduced price. Uh, so I think it's testament to the fans. I think it's testament to our sponsors. It's the music that Bob and, and, and his folks uh, book, all of our vendors on our grounds. And I, I'm just telling you, after traveling the nation, and uh, whether it's through baseball or uh, the business that I'm in now, any community in America would, and, and beyond would want what we have here in Summerfest. This festival contributes on a statewide basis $226 million to our economy, and $186 million of it is right here in southeastern Wisconsin. So it's a job creator. We hire over 2,000 people uh, to work mm-hmm. the festival. I, our payroll goes uh, for just those folks goes to $3 million uh, just for the 11 days, and we have 40 people that work for us full-time who are absolutely dedicated, loyal, and expert. I think another one of the things that, that makes it important is through the years that ticket price has taken it to this, to this level is that it has become the, the People's Festival of Milwaukee. And we've always talked about, of southeastern Wisconsin, we've always talked about that. People in, in this area of, of the state think of it as their festival. And that's really important to them. You see it when we announce acts. It's what's coming to my festival this year. Right. And we keep the price down there, and I think people really take that to heart. We're part of the fabric of this community and part of the fabric of southeast Wisconsin. But, but how do you stay current? I mean, it, look, I, I love music. I, I've got all sorts of songs on my iPod and the, the cloud and all those things. But I, I, I tend to acknowledge that as you get older, for most of us, our, our musical taste is kind of locked in a particular era. You, you, I am always amazed when I see the lineup coming out because there, there's bands I know, and then there's other bands I'm saying, I've never heard of this. How, how does a guy do this for 40 years? I have the answer He's to that. He's got the answer. Oh, <laughs> Go ahead. I, you know, we've got uh, the people that work in the booking department. They're, they're all up, up 30 or 40 years old, or the, old, the youngest, I think, is pushing 40. Um, and it's important to us to talk to other people in the business, talk to other people in, in the city, read all the trade magazines that are out there, keep track, because if you don't keep, if you don't keep changing what's going on out there and you don't keep working after maybe a younger demo, right. that you're going to die, as we talk about. So you see a lot of EDM music out there this year. The younger generations want a little hip-hop music. We're putting that in. He won't say it, but I will. You, it's a people business, and, and you have to know the agents and the band managers yeah. and so on and so forth. And Bob is, you know, he, he spent his whole career here with Summerfest and getting to know these people. And, and 
you know, they trust them and they trust our event. They trust yes. that when they show up, they're going to be treated properly and so on and so forth, which brings us to the amphitheater. Right. And, and that's a building that's going to have to come down. We'll try to save the roof. And we're going to rebuild that because if we don't, we won't. He won't be able. He won't be able to talk these agents into um, coming back to Milwaukee uh, to play Summerfest. That building's going to be 30 years old this summer, and it lives outside on the lake. So it, you only get X amount of years out of it. So we're going to have to do that. But it's really Bob's relationships with these agents and and, and bands, and going back so many years that he's now passing along to other music bookers that we have in the entertainment department. But as Don said earlier, he, he's also right. We've built a state-of-the-art facility, and we keep upgrading that facility. And when bands come here to play, they know they're going to get quality sound, quality lights. It's going to be laid out right well, and they're going to have a good time. When you show up this year, the whole, the whole entrance at Chicago Street and Harbor Drive is going to be brand new. It's going to be like walking into a different park. The entire Miller Light Oasis is, is being totally rebuilt this year. Next year, we'll rebuild the U.S. Cellular Stage. And the year after that, we're going to knock down and rebuild the amphitheater. Mm -hmm. So we have a very aggressive plan. Um, we're, we're, we're pretty aggressive at out, uh, raising money and, and being able to sell sponsorships. And I think that will cement the future mm -hmm. of the festival long after we're sitting on some beach somewhere <laughs> talking about how fun it was. Well, hopefully not, <laughs> hopefully not in the near future. Bob, okay, Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney, is, is there still a white whale of a band out there that you're Captain Ahab trying to nail? Absolutely. And do you want to share who that Absolutely is? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. So, if you had your druthers, what band would you want to see? Now, there's two. There's two it's a two-part question: dead or alive? Oh. <clears throat> well, alive. I, I, I hope you wish. I wish you could figure out a way to get Jimmy Buffett back because I'm a Buffett fan. There I wish you, you could figure out a way to get Buffett back. So do know? I. I wish we yeah, could do that. Right. And I, I know that. I know that's the case. I don't know. I'd have to think that through. Is there? Is there? A, is there? You always hear these stories about the, the bands that have the ridiculous riders. Wait, wait, wait you didn't answer. I, yeah, I, I said yeah. Bob. And I, then you said the dead or alive. I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I'm embarrassed. I never saw the Eagles in their prime, and I guess I, I would have liked to have seen the Eagles in their prime. Yeah, was that last tour a couple of years ago. Was yeah, it yeah, was really crazy. Yeah. Is is there a story? I mean, is was there a band that was alive or dead that was particularly difficult to work with? Um, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, I don't want to mention their names though because they're still working. So okay. <laughs> but but as far I mean, as far it was as far as riders or just never being able to be satisfied or what's well well riders in the old days you would you would get you know five page wine lists in a in a contract rider you know this is this is the domestic wines this is the wines from France that I want pick a couple from each page you used to get that you used to get a case of Jack Daniels for a band but. By and large, that's all gone now because it's it's a business. It's a and it's a big money business. So you, you get macrobi macrobiotic meals, and you get real silverware, real china, tablecloths, and and it's it's a business. But uh, there's some horror stories from the old days. I guarantee you. That. You're gonna write a book someday, perhaps, uh, when we're sitting on that beach. Yeah, maybe while I'm on the beach, I think <laughs> yeah. I'll do that. Yeah, that's absolutely. it. Leonard Skinner. I would have liked to have seen Leonard Skinner before the, the airplane accident. You know, well, you, the airplane you, you, crash. Oh, the original, the original Skinner. Skinner. Yeah, 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 yeah
you, you alluded to this earlier, all the different improvements and the things that are going on. Um, it, it happens in large part because of the relationships that Summerfest has built with the business community. And I know a large part of, of your job is is developing those sponsorships and, and helping raise the, the money, right? It, it, it's a huge part of the job. I mean, it, the, the job is multifaceted. Um, we're problem solvers, and, and we take advantage of opportunities. I mean, I really have to give a nod to Sarah Pankeri, who has done a great job with our sponsors since she came in as our vice president of sales and marketing. Uh, it frees me up to go do some other things or go along with her and help out. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it's really multifaceted. It, it's got a lot of different moving parts. I mean, basically, we're a small company. We're only 40 employees, so you do wear a lot of hats, and uh, you get involved in a lot of different things. Bob, a after the festival ends, I mean, do you, do you take a few months off? Is it just kind of like to sit around? or I mean, He takes a lot of time <laughs> off. Oh, geez, listen to that. <laughs> Actually, we are, we are holding... Dates for 2018 already. Already. Already, yeah. Already. Yeah, but well, here, look. Seriously, I mean, now it's doing it by iPad and iPhone and this and that. So when he's playing golf in Arizona, he's play we're holding dates in 18, but he's playing golf. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I, I know. <laughs> to, to, to which I would say, boss, your point. I mean, the bands are there. <laughs> exactly. You know, you're right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't care where they're booked from, to well, tell you the truth. Uh, Summerfest 50, um, and I think, again, I, I speak from the perspective of a fan and somebody who's attended most of them. It, it's just been tremendous to see the, the way that you two and the people that you work with and work for you ha have maintained that legacy. And I know this year we're all excited. We're partnering with WTMJ. We've got our classic free ride. We're giving away the vehicle the last night of Summerfest, and we're all excited about that. And um, I, I, let me, I know you were kind of kidding around about sitting on the beach. I, I hope from, from a perspective of a fan, for both you guys, I hope that's not going to happen for a long time, okay? Thank you very much. And, and to everyone here, you. you know, uh, with those tickets, if you don't use them, maybe you have a grandchild or a niece or a nephew or something that can come down and enjoy us and, and help celebrate the 50th with us. Yeah, and for people who are listening at home, if you bought a ticket and attended the event tonight, you got a ticket to Summerfest. So, courtesy of Mr. Smiley and Mr. Babish. Bob Babish, Don Smiley, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, folks. This is Insight 2017, sponsored by Annex Wealth Management, Serta Pro Painters, and Crest Cadillac. Now from the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. It's Insight 2017. All right, an insight would not be complete without um, hearing from the sports world. Of course, at WTMJ, we've got the Bucks, we've got the Brewers, but we're all Packers fans. The NFL draft is coming up, and I just don't think you ever get tired of talking about Packers, and we've got the people who know everything about it, Wayne Larravee and Larry McCarran. Welcome to both of you. <laughs> Thank you. Before we get into... Packers 2017. I just want to talk a little bit about both of you with your backgrounds. Wayne, you know, you started what in Kansas City? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my first year of NFL football was uh, 1978. So this will be like my 40th season <laughs> in the NFL. So it's been a, and, and as Larry says it so well at the end of each Packers season, it's it's a privilege. It really is. It, it's something we don't take for granted. I remember listening to one of your back pages, and you were telling a story about when you were in Kansas City. You used to play, what, like touch football or something in a parking lot? Mm -hmm. 
No, and, not in a parking lot. We played on a real field. Okay. All right. Touch football. Were you any good? Uh, no, I was terrible. <laughs> oh, but, but no, but I don't know if you've heard the but story. The but yeah, great. Oh no, we had a great lineup. Um, we had a lot of young guys. We were all in our twenties in Kansas City, and uh, you know, several people went on to. You know, Kevin Harlan was in that group. Um, uh, you know, Rick Goslin of the Dallas Morning News, who's an NFL Hall of Fame writer, uh, was in that, and and uh, you know. So was Rush Limbaugh. And Rush was, uh, at that time, he, he's actually slimmed down a little bit in recent years, but he was as big as a house, and he loved the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he wore the big, black, 75 Joe Green uh, jersey to touch football every Thursday. And he was, uh, he was tough to block. I, I, drew that I drew that assignment on occasion. So that's, and my so, technique was not good. <laughs> so from Kansas City, then to Chicago? Yes. And then from Chicago, how long at the Packers now? Uh, well, I was just telling you, Larry, this is going to be our 19th year together. Wow. Amazing, wow. isn't it? Yeah. Larry, did you ever see your career taking the trajectory that, that it has? I mean, going from the playing field to, to the broadcast booth and being such an institution in Green Bay and in Wisconsin? No, I didn't. <laughs> I was the accidental sportscaster, and my early audiences would attest to that. And uh, this is for real. When I first started doing it, I, I was just god-awful, if you can say that. I was just terrible. And I would have, like, uh, I was still close enough to my playing days. I'd be out somewhere, and I'd see uh, a mom and dad and a, a youngster, you know, kind of looking at you and, and kind of talking. And you kind of, you know, you kind of know what's going on. And, and, uh, and then you see them, dad point, and then, then pretty soon you see this, and the youngster comes over. And, and this happened, I, I swear, more than one occasion, the youngster comes over, and he'll say, Mr. McCarran, could I have your autograph? And I said, well, sure. So I'd be signing the thing, and, and the young guy, and, you know, God bless uh, their honesty of children. And, and he'd say, my parents, my mom and dad over there, they loved you as a player. And I'd say, well, well that's nice of them. Thank you. And he goes, they hate you on TV. <laughs> and, and, and it happened more than once, I swear. And uh, so it was, it was kind of a dubious start for me. Uh, how, how did the, 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 the Packers, how did the WTMJ, the, the, the Packers Network thing, how did that all come about? Uh, for, for myself, uh, Jim and Max, the legendary Jim and Max, and we owe so much to them. Yes, sir. Uh, they they were going strong. I, I don't think, and I never sat in the uh, the meetings and so forth. But the the inclination I always got was that Jim and Max are great by themselves. But I think there was a little impetus from the Packers to get somebody that's there all the time, a little more uh, on a regular basis than Jim and Max were to be a part of the broadcast, and so that's how I got my foot in the door. And I realized at the time, I'm joining the legendary Jim and Max, and job one was don't <laughs> screw it up. So I didn't, say, I didn't say a whole heck of a lot then. <laughs> now, now, Wayne, I remember... But to this day, Jeff, he's at more practices than Mike McCarthy. I'm telling you, <laughs> he's at every practice. Well, that, that should... You know, Wayne, I remember when you started, in addition to doing the, the Packers games, you were also the voice of the Chicago Bulls. You were the hardest working man in, in, in sports. 
Yeah, I was uh, I was still doing Chicago Bulls basketball on WGN TV, and uh, that dovetailed pretty nicely with the NFL. Um, and I did a few other things as well. I was still filling in on some Cubs games. Harry Carey was in his later years kind of failing, and so they used me a little bit. WGN was was wonderful for me because uh, I did so many different things. At one point, I was doing Bears, Cubs, and Bulls on WGN. It was great. It was an incredible run. <laughs> Yeah, you weren't home a lot, though, I would imagine. No, I, which <laughs> helped our marriage greatly. <laughs> That's my wife, she'll tell you. <laughs> what, um, you two have an on-air chemistry. Um, is, is it something that comes natural? Is it something that you guys have had to work at? I mean, I, I know you've been together for years and years, but, I mean, it's just not a Sunday afternoon without listening to the two of you doing a Packers game. I mean this sincerely. Um, I give a lot of credit for our chemistry uh, to Larry um, because, you know, it's interesting. You work in this business, and I've worked a lot of games, uh, you know, uh, college games and, and pro games and everything. You work with a lot of guys who are analysts who come in, and, and it's really not second nature to them. They're not really broadcasters. They're analysts, and they do the games and that type of thing. Um, they don't understand the timing of what this all takes. Uh, when I got to Green Bay, Larry was a long-time media person. He understood from a television sense uh, what timing was. He understood because he was with Jim and Max. He understood timing in the booth. So to me, it felt like a very natural uh, uh, fit with Larry and I, and, and I give him a lot of credit for that because I think he understands um, what, it's, what it takes to do a broadcast and what needs to be done. Now, if I could return the comment if uh, for just a moment, I, I, I give Wayne credit in, in this respect. Like sometimes, to be honest with you, I think his ideas about football are from outer space. However, <laughs> h- however, however, like uh, I have uh, just the background thing and, and having played there and lived there and being there every day. And now I'm at the stadium every day. Now I actually work there. Uh, I, I have a real vet. I, it's not just a game to me. And like before the game and stuff, I can I like I, I feel myself get kind of edgy. And 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 like nobody can do anything right. I mean, <laughs> in those kind of things. And 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 Wayne can just walk into the booth and 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 that can annoy me and things like that. And so it always does. And and, and, and over the years. Wayne has just kind of let me be me, and and believe it or not, we do not talk about a game plan. Uh, there's there's not a lot of uh, uh, preconceived notions how this game is going to go. But I know one thing for fact: Wayne will give will set the stage with the most accurate and thorough play-by-play in the business, and he does it with tremendous juice. Now, when you have that for a foundation, it's hard to screw it up. Uh, there you go. Thank you, Rock. I didn't know you were listening. <laughs> we're You'll be surprised. Break. I do. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk Packers 2017 with Wayne and Larry. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Insight 2017. We're back. Insight 2017. I'm Jeff Wagner, joined by Larry McCarran and Wayne Larrabee. Guys, the NFL draft is coming up. The great thing about football, maybe sports in general, is that all of us think we know more than the professionals. Um, a lot of us think, okay, we, we know what the Packers' needs are. 
What do you look for Ted Thompson to do in the upcoming draft? What does he need to do? Go um, ahead, Rick. You're the captain <laughs> of the ship. Well, you, you know, what, what will he do? That Nobody knows. <laughs> but the 29th pick in the first round, uh, he could go a number of ways with that. But um, this is interesting, folks, and somebody pointed this out to me the other day, and this may be another one of my ideas from Mars, but this team <laughs> might have more question marks at this stage of the season than it ever has since Aaron Rodgers became the starter in 2008. They're just, you know, there have been a lot of changes in Green Bay. This is a, a year of, uh, where the roster's been a little bit in flux. We've lost some key people. Uh, just for example, the six captains who were elected for the playoffs, which is a huge honor in Green Bay and a, and a big part of the leadership of the team, half of those captains are no longer Packers anymore. So this is going to be an interesting year, and, and this draft is... Every draft's important, but, boy, this one, uh, there's, some, uh, there's some areas to fill. Jeff, even Ted's right-hand people, and he's got several that are his deepest confidants, I've been told that they don't really know for sure what Ted's going to do on draft day. <laughs> he plays it that close to the vest. And uh, it was kind of interesting in his pre-draft press conference today that I was at, and he is probably the only GM in the entire National Football League that held a press conference, and he has trained us so well, he was not asked one question about need, and he was not asked one question about a specific player in a 20-minute press conference. I mean, he's trained us, and he plays it very, and it's that way because he plays it so close to the vest. What I would like to see happen, and Wayne's absolutely right, they do have some holes to fill. What I'd like to see happen is somebody with playmaking ability. As things stand now, the 29th pick. Somebody with playmaking ability that can either rush the passer off the edge or play outside in the secondary as a cornerback. Playmaking ability. And I could regurgitate a couple names, but the credibility would stop with... It's like reading a magazine. Right. I don't care about the 280 kids or whatever there was at the combine. I was down. I don't care about 280. I care about the eight or nine or ten or whatever it turns out to be that the Packers draft. And after the rookie camp following the draft, I can speak for an hour on the Packers draft picks. Have, have in your opinions, have the Packers, given the fact that you've got arguably the best quarterback in the NFL, Aaron Rodgers, have over the last several years they not failed to do enough to surround him with enough impact players, not just to make the playoffs, but to actually get to and win the Super Bowl? Well, I think they've tried, and I think they've especially tried to upgrade the, the uh, defense. Um, what's interesting about the Packers, uh, 2010 they win the Super Bowl. The next year they go 15-1, and but the defense kind of collapses on them. And since then, in the last five drafts, they've drafted 23 players on the defensive side of the football. Larry and I reach the playoffs every year, and the thing we always kind of conclude together is that, well, this team, we know what the offense is going to do. This team will go about as far as the defense will allow it. And, you know, they've tried to fix that, Jeff. They've had five straight first-round draft choices on the defensive side of the football. They've had drafted 23 players uh, of defenders in, in the last five drafts, seven of whom were drafted in the first and second rounds of the draft. 
um, you know, they've tried. Uh, they, uh, I think Ted has done what he, all he can in that regard. Sometimes the picks haven't worked out. Sometimes they have. Haha, Clinton Dix is a great pick uh, that they made. And I think Nick Perry is evolving into a Pro Bowl kind of player. These are guys that were drafted in the high in the first round, you know, and that type of thing. So uh, I think you're seeing what you're going to see with this team is like any other team. Their second, third, and fourth-year players are going to have to become players. Those who aren't already are going to have to become players for this team to take the next step. Jeff, I don't expect anybody to agree with me on this, uh, but I've been close to it for a long time, and I think sometimes you have to step back. And you're right, they haven't duplicated a Super Bowl victory with Aaron Rodgers as a quarterback. However, it is very difficult to always be in the mix. It is extremely difficult. And when you look at a team, no, they didn't win at all, but look at a team, eight straight trips to the playoffs, no up and down, always always relevant, always a factor, always being, a talk about, being talked about, and also two of the last three seasons making football's Final Four. Mm-hmm. That is not, we take yeah. some of that for granted, that is not, easy to do and you look at the teams and there's a whole bunch of them come in they're in the mix for a couple years and they fall out of the mix and they have awful seasons the green bay packers have maintained a level of consistent not ultimate success but consistent success year in and year out for a long long time you know jeff uh larry's exactly right the only two teams in the nfl folks who have made the playoffs in each of the last eight seasons have been the New England Patriots and the Green Bay Packers. Um, the Patriots have won two Super Bowls. The Packers, over that period of time, have won one. Uh, the Packers have been to two NFC title games. The last time I felt they really had a chance to go all the way, and I thought they would if they got to the Super Bowl, was 2014, when they beat Seattle uh, to a pulp for 56 minutes, and the game got away in overtime. That was the last time they really had, in my opinion, a Super Bowl team. And since then, the roster has been in transition. And, folks, I think it's marvelous what they've done from a personnel standpoint to keep keep this team, as Larry mentioned, at a playoff level as you're turning over the uh, roster. Only 20 players from that 2014 NFC Championship uh, game are still on the roster. So there's been a lot of turnover here, yet they've maintained a very high level of play. To that point, I know a lot of us casual fans are looking at some of the things that happened in the offseason. Some of the players the Packers decided to let go, um, particularly like T.J. Lang, for example. Um, from you guys' perspective, sometimes I understand the draft and develop thing. Would you like to see Ted you know, reach into the pocketbooks and, and pay some of these guys to keep them around? I'm, I'm like the average fan. Yeah, let's get everybody in the first day. You know, I mean, let's get this cornerback and this pass rusher. This, you know, but it's not, it's not reality, and that's not the way they do business. No, this was a year where they lost uh, not only some good players, but good guys, too. You mentioned TJ, Micah Hyde, yeah. Julius Peppers. What a class yeah. act he's been. And uh, it's tough, but that's the NFL, and uh, – I think the adage is it's better to park company a year, year early yeah. than a year late. Yep. And especially when guys get some miles on them and the injuries start piling up. And I would love to. I just saw T.J. Lang in the parking lot the other day, and I thought, wow, was it a privilege watching the way he played the game and went about his business. And uh, unfortunately, he's going to be doing it for the Lions, but uh, – 
But that's kind of, and you talk to the guys in the locker room, which we did to some extent this week when they opened the off-season program. You talk to the guys, and, and, and there's not a bunch of wailing and gnashing of teeth that they lost some good buddies who are also good players. All the guys, two men say, that is the business. Mm-hmm. Okay, before I let you go, and I understand we're sitting here, it's April, a lot of stuff, a lot of water is going to be under the bridge. Packers make the playoffs again for a ninth consecutive year? I think so, yeah, absolutely. I'd bet the ranch on it, Jeff. I mean, big time. <laughs> From your lips to God's ear, Larry McCarron, Wayne Larrabee, thanks for joining us, guys. Thank My you. pleasure. We'll be back Thank with more Insight 2017 in just a couple minutes. This is Insight 2017, sponsored by Annex Wealth Management, Serta Pro Painters, and Crest Cadillac. Now from the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. Insight 2017. This is a real treat for me. Um, We are joined by not one, not two, not three, but four sitting justices on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Rebecca Bradley, Michael Gableman, Annette Ziegler, and the newest justice, Dan Kelly. Hello. Welcome all four of you. Thank you. You know, and, and just, just so, I mean, people on the radio won't realize this, but you're not wearing your robes. You're all in, like, the, the normal clothes there and stuff. But we are well clothed. <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly. Um, let's, I am curious, as, and I want to give people an opportunity to hear about your individual backgrounds before you, you came onto the court. Uh, let's start with you, Justice Kelly. Dan. Sure. Thanks so much for having me here this evening. I really appreciate it. You bet. Um, I spent most of my uh, career as a commercial litigator, Reinhardt Berner, Van Duren, uh, one of the state's uh, oldest and largest uh, law firms, um, where I had the privilege of representing both individuals and corporations and uh, in our courts, uh, both state and federal, and across the country. Um, I've been a litigator all my uh, life, and I love being in the courtroom. And uh, uh, when this opportunity came up, one of the things I had mentioned uh, upon being appointed was that um, even though I've spent my life litigating, I still, to this day, can't walk into a courtroom without having my heart skip a beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that is, you know, the uh, desire to do well for your client. Part of it is um, the idea that this, uh, what we're dealing with, is the majesty of the law. That's that's a big thing. Uh, and uh, having an opportunity to be a part of that, uh, when you walk into a courtroom, you recognize the timeliness, timelessness of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, now having uh, an opportunity to be on the other side of the bench, uh, my heart still skips a beat <laughs> every time I walk into the courtroom. Uh, but for reasons now uh, of having this tremendous opportunity uh, to help uh, shepherd institutionally and jurisprudentially uh, the law in this great state. Justice Ed Ziegler, who, by the way, was just reelected earlier this month, running unopposed to a second 10-year term. <laughs> A little bit about your background. All right, and by the way, thank you. Thank you very much for being invested in who your judges are in this state. It is critically important that people are informed, that they take the time to learn about the court, and take the time to vote. Springland elections don't have much of a turnout, and makes a big difference if you show up. So thank you, all the people in this room, for uh, exercising your constitutional right. I appreciate it. Uh, I, too, was in private practice. I worked at a law firm in Milwaukee, O'Neill, Cannon, Holman, 
And I did corporate and business litigation there. I really enjoyed working with my clients. I worked with corporate and business clients, large and small, some mom-and-pop shops, a lot like my parents. They had a hardware store in Grand Rapids, Michigan. In 1997, uh, a judge passed away in Washington County. I live in West Bend, still do, commute to Madison, 74 miles, but who's county? And... uh, (laughs) When the judge passed away, a number of us applied. Tommy Thompson was the governor. He gave me the honor and the privilege of serving the people of Washington County, and I was reelected there two times. In 2007, Justice Wilcox called me. He was retiring from the Supreme Court and asked if I'd consider running for a seat. I talked to my husband and my family about it. We thought that's probably a good idea. Ran in 2007, and thanks to many of the great people in this room, we won by about 20 percentage points, so thank you. And uh, then ran again this past April. So that's kind of the background and history of Annette Ziegler. And of course, in in the small world uh, category, my brother, who will tell everybody when he sees him that he is my younger brother by several years, Scott was one of your classmates. He was indeed, K. Scott. (laughs) Uh, Justice Michael Gableman. I've been very, very lucky in that I have done in the law uh, exactly what I wanted to do. My dad sold furniture and my mother was a fifth grade school teacher. And so we didn't know any lawyers or judges. And once I found out uh, what a law clerk did, a law clerk kind of sounds like a a functionary kind of position, but A law clerk assists a judge with legal research and drafting of opinions. And starting with that job that I did for three years uh, for several different judges, my, my charge, my duty, was to do what was right under the law. When I'd be assigned uh, an opinion to draft, uh, the judge's instruction would always be find the right result under the law and draft it. And then I became a prosecutor, and I did that for six years. Uh, There came an opportunity in 2008 when the incumbent, Lewis Butler, who had been appointed by then-Governor Doyle, uh, was up for election. And it became quite apparent to me, uh, sitting up in Burnett County, that no one else was going to run against him. And I had been baffled by the opinions that I had seen coming out of our state Supreme Court. I figured I either had to run or, you know, be prepared for 10 more years. We have, were elected statewide and we run for 10-year terms. It was hardly the landslide that I had hoped it would be, but it was 51%, which was enough. And, and Justice Bradley? Thank you, Jeff, for having us here tonight. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's my uh, second appearance on Insight. I was here last year. And you were running for office. (laughs) I was, and my uh, election was not a sleepy, quiet race uh, whatsoever because, as you all remember, both of the parties had their presidential, contested presidential primaries, and Wisconsin was still in play. Um, So it was not a a quiet race for me. But I want to thank everyone who came out to support me during that race and helped me uh, win the highest number of votes in a Wisconsin Supreme Court election, over a million votes last year. So that was uh, very humbling. My path to the Supreme Court began at home, but I'm not going to tell you my life history. But I do want to make a shout out to my mother, who's in the audience. (laughs) Give a little wave, Mom. (laughs) 
uh, without wonderful parents, uh, without my wonderful mother, I would not be on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And my parents were great and always emphasizing the importance of education, and so I was privileged to have a terrific education all through law school. I practiced law for over 16 years before I became a judge. I first served as a Milwaukee Circuit Court judge. I also served on the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, and then after the sad passing of Justice Patrick Crooks, and two of my colleagues here uh, had the uh, privilege of serving with um, Governor Walker, honored, we, honored me with an appointment to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and I won my election last year, and it is my great honor and privilege to serve all of you, the people of Wisconsin, in that position. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to the four of you about, well, some issues that are percolating um, regarding not the, the court, not specific issues that applies to the court, but we've talked a little bit about the electoral process and things like that. So I have some questions to ask you. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Insight 2017. This is Jeff Wright. Insight 2017 from the Country Springs Hotel. We're joined by four justices from the state Supreme Court, Justice Dan Kelly, Justice Annette Ziegler, Justice Michael Gableman, and Justice Rebecca Bradley. Um, as we were just talking, you, uh, a number of you, three of you, have been through the electoral process. In many states, we do not elect judges. Judges are appointed. Maybe then they stand for retention. How do you feel, having been through the electoral process, is it is it good that we elect judges, or should we be looking at a different model? Justice Ziegler. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I look at it this way. I love getting out and talking to people and trying to educate the public on what the court can do and what the court cannot do. And that's a big part of running for the court, just getting out, meeting people, and talking to them. And I like that. Having said that, our Constitution calls for judges to be elected. That's what our founding fathers in the state decided a long time ago, and it's worked well for, what, 170 years or so? It's uh, something that I trust. I guess maybe it's just me having my experience as a lawyer who tried cases to juries, as a lawyer who presented cases to grand juries, as a judge who presided over, boy, hundreds of trials, um, I see people make really good, sound decisions, despite a lot of different smoke screens and um, expert testimony and complex issues being thrown at them. And I think people sort through the electoral process just the same way. I trust my fate to the people. I just do. Justice Bradley, you very contentious election. Um, and I, I'm sure when you, when you think, okay, I, I want to be a judge or I want to be a justice, you understand that there's going to be some things that come up. My guess is you probably didn't even recognize the person that they were talking about and some of the ads that were being run and things. Um, I mean, how, would we be better off, and again, I understand that the Constitution right now would have to be changed, but would we be better off if we did away with the electoral process and moved to something else? Well, I've had the opportunity to go through an appointment process, which some people advocate as a preferable means of selecting our judges. And I've also been through contested elections twice now, once in Milwaukee County and once statewide. And I will always defend the right of the people to select 
their elected officials, the officials who serve them in every branch of government, including the judiciary, we should be accountable to the people, not for the outcomes of our decisions, because we're not always going to rule the way somebody would like us to rule, but we always rule in accordance with the law, and that's how we are accountable to the people, and I think it's important to maintain that, and that's what the people have chosen the entire time we've been a state and even before that. Justice Gableman, one of the, the controversies that's out there is the, the people focus on, on the role of, of third parties and the role of, of money in, in different elections. Has it gotten too expensive to have to run for the court? Um, are there problems with, with third parties that do things beyond the control of the candidates sure. or the justices? When the founders of our state way back when they were preparing the Constitution of 1848, when they took up the question of whether to follow the federal model uh, of lifetime appointments or whether a, a, a governor's appointment or an elected judiciary, that was not a question that they took lightly. They debated that question for two days during the Constitutional Convention. And they decided that they wanted, in our great state of Wisconsin, judges to be accountable to the people. And I'm going to ask you how comfortable any of you would be to give up your constitutional right to vote. When you hear these people, to these so-called good government people, well, let me just tell you, I, I've noticed a, a little bit of hypocrisy on the side of these good government people because when things are going fine, for their preferred candidate, everything is fine with the system. But when all of a sudden conservatives start to win, ooh, there's a problem, we have to look at it. But I'll tell you what, the founders of our country thought, if you're not tough enough to go through the electoral process, then maybe a public life, public service, maybe you don't have what it takes to have the strength to carry forward the people's business. Justice Kelly, you're the new guy on the block. Um, how have you found the work on the Supreme Court? You know, if we, you read some of the newspaper headlines, and the, the, the court, I think, perhaps finds itself involved in more controversy than perhaps at any time I, I can remember. Um, you know, how, how do you find the collegiality? How do you find working with your fellow justices? And they're not listening, so how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you find it? <laughs> this is just between you and me, Between right? you and me, Justice. Okay. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> I, uh, I have to say that I have been extraordinarily pleased uh, by the reception that I found uh, on the court. Uh, I have uh, been received warmly. Um, I have been the beneficiary of a great deal of uh, good uh, counsel and wise advice in the way, uh, the way we uh, conduct our affairs and our work. And um, it has been one of the most fulfilling and satisfying uh, things that I've ever done uh, in my life. I, I, cannot, uh, I cannot speak highly enough about my colleagues here. Um, they are a delight to work with. They are intelligent. They are interesting. Uh, they are well-read. Uh, and, uh, and they are wise. And, um, and, and I think that uh, the work that you see coming from this court uh, is very good, high-quality uh, work. And it's true to our founding principles. Uh, it, is, it respects the limits of the judiciary. Um, and uh, and it, uh, it safeguards uh, what you, the people, uh, have decided you want your government to be. 
You know, and you know, on this uh, prior question, if I might just uh, throw in a thought on that, having not been through an election, uh, I uh, you've got I, that coming up. I've yeah. got that coming up. Um, and you know, I was extraordinarily honored to be appointed to this position uh, by Governor Walker. Uh, but that's a temporary thing, uh, and it's designed to be a temporary thing. The, you know, the election uh, of a member of this court is part of the fundamental compact between you and us, and there's a reason for that. It, and it, it goes to accountability, that's one part of it, but even more fundamentally, um, you know, the authority that we exercise at the court is not our own. It belongs to all of you and everybody that's listening to us. This is borrowed authority that we have. And part of that fundamental compact is that we need to stand in front of you and, um, and ask you, are we the kind of people, are we the individuals that you want to delegate that authority to? Do you trust us with that responsibility? And um, so it's, it, it, goes beyond, uh, it goes beyond accountability. Uh, when we come to you in an election, uh, what we're saying is um, we understand that you are the source of authority in this state. And what we, uh, what we do on the court is derivative of what you loan to us. And that's all it is. It's loaned authority. And so when we come to you, it is only good and true and right that we ask you for permission to do that. Uh, and you either grant or withhold your permission. After you go through the next election, I'll ask you the same question. Indeed, we'll yeah, be, uh, yeah. and we'll see if it stays the same. For, for what it's worth, from the perspective of a recovering lawyer, um, I have attention, uh, have the opportunity, of course, to read a lot of the decisions that you all come out with, and I, I, I want to say this sincerely. I think, um, I think the Wisconsin State Supreme Court is in very, very good hands, and I think that um, the decisions, while I mean, the law is an art, it is not a science, and reasonable people can perhaps disagree about things from time to time. I don't think there's any question that um, the people on the court are very committed and they're doing what they believe is the right thing, and I think Wisconsin, the Supreme Court, is in very good hands, and I want to thank all four of you for joining me for Insight 2017. Coming up next on Insight 2017, I'm going to sit down with Wisconsin Attorney General Brad Schimmel to talk about the huge opioid problem that we have in this state, 620 WTMJ. We now return to Insight 2017, sponsored by Annex Wealth Management, Pro Painters, and Crest Cadillac. Now from the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee, once again, your host, Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. It's Insight 2017. We are joined by the Attorney General of the State of Wisconsin, Brad Schimmel. Brad, welcome. Thank you for having me on, Jeff. You know, I've been thinking back, and you know, you and I know each other from from back in the day when you were in the DA's office in Waukesha and I was a federal prosecutor, and most of my work centered around chasing drug dealers. And and back in the day, the 80s, the early 90s, we had had problems with cocaine, and we had problems with crack cocaine and, and methamphetamine. In all the years I worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I don't know that I ever saw heroin. Heroin now is, is perhaps arguably the number one problem in the state of Wisconsin? Oh, yeah. It, it's absolutely an epidemic. It's a public health crisis. It went way beyond a public safety problem a long time ago. Um, we, we were amazed, too. I, I remember back in the mid-2000s, before I even ran for DA, I was assigned in the drug unit. And we started seeing heroin in Brookfield, and Oconomowoc, and Muskego, and we, we couldn't believe it. Where did this come from? How is anybody using this again? Didn't anybody learn the lessons from this? And then we discovered even worse, 
It wasn't the heroin we were dealing with decades ago. In the 80s, the average period of heroin was about 5% right. for sale on the street. We reached a time in the, uh, I read around 2010, I don't remember which year, actually the average purity for heroin for sale on the street was in excess of 50% in America. It's dropped back down more like to 30% now. And, and we thought that was it. It can't get any worse than this. And now we've had roll in these synthetic fentanyl drugs that are, that are 50 times more potent than that heroin. And of course, the, it's not like there's a Bureau of Standards. So the people who are going out and buying these drugs have no clue as to what it is that they're actually getting and taking. Right. Uh, pharmaceutical companies do make fentanyl. It's used by anesthesiologists to put you under for surgery. But there's a doctor monitoring your vital signs when they use fentanyl on you. It's that dangerous. This fentanyl is being made by drug cartels. They're getting the raw ingredients, usually from China. And they're frankly, more and more we're seeing it shipped up here. They're, they don't even have to bring it across the border. They're sending it by, by common carrier. Brad, the thing that struck me as well as, is when we talk about the heroin problem, it seems to me it's, it's getting younger and younger. I mean, you, you, you can't listen to radio news or turn on the TV or pick up a newspaper without seeing drugs in the high schools and drug overdoses affecting like high school students. Has that been what you've noticed? Well, it's certainly where they're starting. Uh, it's certainly the gateway. Most of the time, um, by the time they're reaching overdoses and, and, and unfortunately fatal overdoses so often, they're typically out of high school. But, but we can't ignore that this is affecting other, um, other demographics. The fastest growing rates for overdose deaths are actually middle-aged men. What do you attribute that to? Ages. For some, it's, it's because they've had a surgery and they, they took too much and they were just one of the people who were unlucky in the lottery of life. And you're pre physiologically predisposed to become addicted to these drugs. About, they estimate about 10% of us are. So it's, it's pretty frightening that that's sitting out there. And, um, for some, it's recreational use. For some, it's um, trying to deal with, with chronic pain. It's trying to deal with mental health issues. There's a lot of reasons people are turning to drugs these days. It's a difficult world to live in now. Mm -hmm. I know when I've attended conferences where people are presented, one of the things, especially with young people that you hear about, is you'll have kids that'll get started by raiding mom and dad's medicine cabinet. And they'll find mom and dad have the prescription for the oxycodone or whatever it is. They'll start taking those pills. They'll develop an addiction or a taste for it. Then they can't get the pills, so they'll turn to heroin, right. for example, which is the, the cheaper alternative that's out there. Right. Um, we know that 71% of the time when people start abusing pills, they didn't get them from a doctor or a drug dealer, or at least not a traditional drug dealer. They got them from a family member or a friend. Either somebody shared their prescription or they stole them. It's a common story now among, among realtors that um, they have to tell their clients, don't, you know, used to be just don't leave any cash laying around during the open house. That would be a bad idea. Now they have to tell their clients, clean out your medicine cabinets because people when they check out your bathroom are going to go fish through. We get drug seekers that are going out to open houses to see what they can grab. Um, we know 71% of the time people get them first from a family member or a friend somehow. We know that 80% of the people, four out of five people who start using heroin, 
start became first addicted to prescription narcotic painkillers. It to me this presents a great opportunity for us because rarely in when we're looking at a public safety or public health crisis do we have such an easy math to do. But here if if we can get people to only use prescriptions as they're prescribed to you, mm -hmm. no sharing, lock them up safely and securely in your homes. No one would leave a loaded handgun sitting on the counter of your house while teenagers are coming in and out all day. That's asking for trouble. But not enough people think about what's in their medicine cabinet. And what's in your medicine cabinet kills far more people than guns. So lock them up. And then finally, when you're done, get rid of them properly. And we have our next drug take-back day coming up on April 29th. And this is one of the places I'm, I'm really proud of Wisconsin. I actually just got back today from the National Prescription Drug Abuse Conference in, uh, in Atlanta. Uh, 48 states were represented there. And Wisconsin is the gold standard. We're doing this better than anybody else. After my presentation, I had... Yeah. So when you say we're doing this better, what are you talking about? What, what are we doing in Wisconsin that's setting the standards? Well, um, I'll, go, I'll work backward to, and get to, my, uh, to our prevention and awareness campaign. Our prescription drug monitoring program that we just put in place, it is the state of the art. It's the, it's the best in the nation. This is what everybody wants to aspire to. And you know, when we passed this, there wasn't a whimper from the medical community. Now, normally, whenever, governments, whenever government mandates things for a profession, they're going to push back. In Wisconsin, because from the beginning, we had the medical community at the table with us talking about this. They recognize they have a role to play in getting us out of this problem. And so when we talked about making the prescription drug monitoring program mandatory for them, they said, okay, we see the value in that. Can you maybe take a look at some of our concerns? Like it used to take 13 clicks to get to the information needed on a computer screen. The doctor doesn't have time for that. So it's going to be one click now. And so by monitoring, you're talking about making it easier for physicians to track yeah. whether patients are, are doctor shopping and going from doctor to doctor, right. getting prescriptions for Oxy or whatever. In some states that went to mandatory prescription drug monitoring programs, they saw as much as a 40% drop in prescribing of opioids. Now, in Wisconsin, between 2015 and 2016, the last three months of those years we compared them, we saw an 11% drop in that time and that wasn't due to any law that was due to the medical community starting to get the message thinking differently about how they prescribe and not all but more and more every day having different conversations with their patients we're going to see change when we when we change what's happening with prescribing habits and now our our um our public awareness campaign in wisconsin called dose of reality we now have two other states that have launched the campaign they simply they asked, and I said, sure, you can take, take all of our materials. Maine and Minnesota are both doing it. Um, the state of Nebraska and the state of Washington are both looking at doing it this morning, or yesterday morning, uh, someone from Tennessee asked about uh, trying to do it in their state. Tell you what, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll pick it up right there. I also want to talk to you about a couple other things, including something that I know is near and dear to the hearts of a lot of our audience, both in person and, and listening, which is the, the spike in juvenile crime that we're having here as well. So that's coming right up. We'll take a quick break. It's Insight 2017. I'm Jeff Wagner with Attorney General Brad Schimmel. Insight 2017 from the Country Springs Hotel. 
I'm Jeff Wagner, joined by Attorney General Brad Schimmel. Brad, we were talking a little bit about the, the dose of reality, the public awareness campaign. How does that operate? What we're doing is going after the myths. Um, people think that prescriptions can't be dangerous, can't be addictive, because they're prescribed by a doctor after all. That's actually the reverse of the, the way you should think about it. The reason why we require a prescription is because they can be addictive. They can be dangerous when they're not used properly. So we're working to undo that myth. People like to think this is this opiate epidemic, this is an urban problem. This isn't going to affect us in our rural community or our, or our suburban community. This is hitting every kind of community in Wisconsin. And I'll tell you, the, one of the myths that we struggle with the most is the idea that this can't happen to us. This only happens to the bad kids. I have met hundreds and hundreds of parents um, who have buried their children to overdoses from either the pills or heroin. And I've yet to meet the parent that thought their child was the bad kid. And frankly, most of them have been very effective at convincing me their kids were absolutely the good kid. It's scary. I'm a, I have teenage daughters. And, um, you know, and I know I'm not immune from this danger because what's happening, you know, kids make mistakes. That's, that's your job description as a teenager. You, you <laughs> make mistakes. And hopefully you, learn, you survive them and you learn from them. The problem with this is you make this mistake, you may not survive to learn from it. Brad, I know everybody appreciates the, the efforts you're undertaking and the, the seriousness of this problem. And I think a lot of it does just come back to awareness. I think a lot of people are just in denial. No, no, we don't have a heroin problem. We don't have an opioid problem, and we really do. Absolutely. Um, it, 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 it's hit Wisconsin as bad as anywhere. Um, we, were, we have been, um, in recent years, we've been as high as number two and number three for pharmacy robberies in America, not per capita raw numbers. We had more pharmacy robberies in California, New York, Florida, Texas. But there's a good side to all this. With our, with our awareness campaign we've been working on, we're also leading the nation in this. When we look at our drug take-back days, our next one's on um, April 29th, but you don't have to wait till our two drug take-back days. You can go on our website, doseofrealitywi.gov. You can find on there an interactive map. Enter your zip code. It will show you a pin map with all the closest medication return units, 24-7, no questions asked. Just go get rid of this stuff. If you clean out that drawer in your bathroom, you've got room for more socks or something. <laughs> you've got, but, but you're also not leaving those drugs susceptible to diversion by kids who do things now called farm parties where they, they steal what they can and they bring it and they put it in a bowl and they take stuff not even knowing what it is. This is a real danger for us. This isn't fictional stuff. It's happening every day. So get those out of the medicine cabinet. Don't, you know, don't flush them down the toilet because that puts it in our water supply. We've got a system. But Wisconsin has now, in April of last year, we were number three in the nation for our drug take back. Only Texas and California collected more than us. Um, and California collected 200 pounds more. Right. We collected 64,000 pounds of unused medications last April. Last October, we moved up to number two in the nation. Only Texas collected more than us. And, and I told the Texas AG, we've got them in, I'm gunning for them. <laughs> as long as I've got you, let, let's switch gears for, for just a minute. Um, one of the other things I've noticed in the years since I left the U.S. Attorney's Office has been, especially in certain urban areas, the explosion of, of juvenile crime. I still have a lot of friends in law enforcement, and I know one of the frustrating things they tell me is that while most kids are good, you, you have, first of all, 
younger and younger people that are committing more serious crimes. You also have people who just aren't getting the, the, the message, you know, kids who are getting arrested 10, 15 times and who just, for whatever reasons, there's no consequences, there's slaps on the wrist, whatever they're doing isn't getting the message. Do, do we need to change the approach we have to, to juvenile crime? Well, I think we do. I'm a big fan of the broken windows approach. Um, you don't let the little things go. When you start letting, that refers to neighborhoods where you leave windows that are broken and no one does anything about it, it starts deteriorating the whole, deteriorating the whole neighborhood. Um, with young people, you know, they're testing us. That's also in a teenager's job, job description is to test the limits. And when they find they can, they can steal something and they get away with it, nothing significant happens, well, now they've learned I, I can do that and I can get away with it. Well, after you've stolen for the first time, the second time's easier and it, get, and it, it escalates. You ha we have to take care of these problems when they're small. We need to start, we can't ignore the little problems and I think we've, we've failed at that. Chris, the flip side is you have some politicians who are saying, well, we, we don't want to lock people up, we don't want to throw away the keys, we've got issues with you know, some of the juvenile prisons in the state, we, we, need to, we need to have more monitoring or we need to have more mentoring, which, I mean, I understand to a point, but it, does that solve the problem with the hardcore criminals? It depends on what community you're talking about. I mean, in different, different places, there's better infrastructure to help, to help mentor those kids to diff, different schools. Are, are going to be a, a better place for that kid to learn a good example than others. But um, in the end, um, we have there has to be a consequence that that fits the action. And frankly, to get to get sent to juvenile corrections, that that's not something that happens lightly. By the time you get there, you've been in the system many times, or you've done something that simply has shocked our consciousness, and and we've had to do something. Since you took over as Attorney General, you have been at the forefront of a number of, of legislative challenges. <laughs> um, you know, whether it's supporting the federal government or taking on the federal government in, in different initiatives. Has, the, has that part of the job been a surprise to you? I don't remember when I was supporting the federal government. Um, <laughs> Maybe coming up. Maybe you'll have a couple coming up here, yeah. It's, it's, certainly, a, it's certainly been a new world because um, I, I couldn't even tell you how many times we have sued the federal government in the last two years. I'd have to go back through and just start making a list. But it's the whole alphabet soup. We've, we've brought lawsuits against virtually every federal regulatory agency because there's a, there's a huge pressure in Washington, D.C. They, they feel compelled to constantly take rights from the states. Um, the way it works in our, in our constitutional republic is that power flows from the states to the federal government. And unfortunately, too many in Washington, D.C. have forgotten that. And we've worked hard the last two years to remind them that of, of how it's supposed to be. Um, it's different now because we have now already written letters to President Trump's administration to say there's a problem with your regulatory agency. And now instead of um, getting no response, we're actually getting positive responses. We wrote and said, for instance, there, um, in the 11th hour, of his administration, President Obama, uh, his uh, Social Security Administration put a new rule into effect back in December 16th, I think was the date, put this in effect that said um, the Social Security Administration would decide who gets to have guns or not. And if you, were, if you received your money through SSA, right. through a payee, no guns for you. That's, that's absolutely way beyond what Congress ever intended in the law. And 
you know, normally right now there'd be a lawsuit pending. Instead, we wrote, and legislative leaders and the president heard it, or the incoming president, the president-elect at the time heard it, and it got fixed. We didn't, we didn't have to bring a lawsuit. I know you loved your job as an assistant DA. I know you loved your job as the district attorney here in Waukesha County. Has the, has the AG job been everything you thought it was going to be? I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, I mean, I, I kind of knew in general terms what we were going to do, but I'll tell you the truth. I thought, being, you know, when you come into the DA's office, you're checking the lockup list. Who got locked up last night? What did they do? And what are you going to do about it today? And I thought, I'm going to go to the AG's office, and it's going to be very administrative and, and you know, more <laughs> dull. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, truth. Our hands are in everything, frankly. I, I step out of the elevator in the morning if I'm actually in the office and not in Sparta or Green Bay or whatever for the day, but I step off the elevator, there's always somebody waiting with, um, you got two minutes? There's no two minutes. <laughs> right. There's nothing takes two minutes. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be the next 45 minutes, and it's going to be a crisis that we have to work on to solve today. Brad Schimmel, I appreciate you spending more than two minutes with us this evening. Thanks so much for coming down. Appreciate it. Brad Schimmel, the Attorney General of the State of Wisconsin, will be back with more Insight 2017 in just a minute. This is Insight 2017, sponsored by Annex Wealth Management, Serta Pro Painters, and Crest Cadillac. Now from the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee, here's your host, Jeff Wagner. <laughs> well, welcome. It's Insight 2017. I have been waiting for this interview because um, I, I like to eat. And I, I like to eat at a lot of good restaurants, and that means in this area, if you're looking for a lot of good restaurants, you are at a Bartolotta's restaurant. And we are with the empresaria of the uh, restaurant business, uh, Joe Bartolotta. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And, and by the way, I'm proud of all those pounds I've put on you. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. right. Well, I, they're all deserved and well-earned. And well-paid for. What, yeah. What, how did you get into the business in the first place? Uh, the restaurant business is an industry of sort of the island of the misfits. Um, you know, many people get in the business, they have a great college degree in anthropology and really don't know what to do with it. So they end up uh, earning money, uh, paying off student debt. They end up in the restaurant business and, and find out that they really love it. And that, so I, I, went, I went through high school uh, sort of a, a loner, um, never went to homecoming prom, never had a date. It's a pretty pathetic story, I know. <laughs> Give me an awe. You know, so, uh, but yeah, I, I really didn't find my way. And, it, and one day my dad said, just start bartending. And I did, and I loved it. Walters on North was my sure. first job. You know, um, started bartending, and I loved it. And uh, I realized that... Um, I was able to connect with people uh, from a hospitality standpoint. So the, fr the first restaurant was the Italian restaurant in Wauwatosa? Ristorante was the first, celebrating our 25th year coming up right. very soon. Right. Yeah. One of the things that I've always been struck by is how difficult it is to sustain a particular restaurant. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Carl Roche's, for example, something that you would never think closing. Carl Roche's ends up closing. You, you never hear about you know, Bartolotto's restaurants closing. What's the secret to your success? Well, it's, it's interesting, and I wonder that every once in a while. You know, but Milwaukee is blessed uh, to have such a vibrant culinary community, um, and 
and it's just it's it's really great to have so many great restaurants and choices in our city. Um, that said, uh, and I said this to the governor on the way out, unlike a lot of other cities, for some reason, our population remains a little bit more static than I think we would all like it to be. Uh, meaning, if if a thousand people leave, a thousand people come in, um, and we don't see a net growth in population as much as I'd like to. So when you open a lot of businesses in that segment, whether it's grocery stores or retail or restaurants, and the population doesn't keep up with that growth, everybody ends up nipping at each other's heels. So mm -hmm. the piece of the pie just gets a little bit smaller for everybody. Um, so it is a challenging market right now. There are a lot of restaurants out there, and we scratch our heads uh, as a group and wonder, you know, how how do you how do you you know you know survive in a very competitive market? And but you're obviously doing something right because again, whether it's you know, Mr. B's or Lake Park right. Bistro or Bacchus or any of them, they're they've been successful. They, they don't close. We we have a lot of longevity in our restaurants, and I think the strength of our business is is really the people that we have in it. And and Jeff, honestly, the strategy is. Um, you know, opening restaurants for me, I've realized over the years, has become more of a defensive play than an offensive play, meaning that I've never really chased the bottom line as a company. I think if you take care of the guest, you take care of the employees, you take care of the vendors and the community, then making money is sort of easy to do. That's changed a little bit because it's gotten harder to make money. but. Uh, we focus on the blocking and tackling, what happens and what we can control within our four walls. Mm -hmm. And and that's really all about taking care of our employees and our guests. Uh, buying great raw materials, have, having excellent people cooking it, create great environments, and just focus on the basics. I thought an interesting decision you made a few years back was typically when you think of Bartolotta's restaurants, you think of fine dining. Um, you, you've gotten into, for example, the burgers, like the North Point Burger Bar, which I, I will stop by occasionally when I'm coming up Lake sure. Drive in the summer. What was the rationale behind that? Because that's sort of a departure from what you've done in the past. Yes, and, and I'm not going to say it, it was a mistake, but we've realized that um, we got away from some of our core businesses and some of our core beliefs. Uh, you know, there's a lot of noise in the marketplace, and you listen to the noise, you think, well, you know, the market is shifting. People want less expensive choices and, and a variety of choices. So we tried to deliver in some of our venues a pretty high-quality product at a lower price because Milwaukee, you know, come on, look in the mirror. We're all a little bit frugal here, uh, and, and they're very value-driven. And so um, and the other thing that Milwaukee uh, – becomes a little bit of a challenge. It's really a one, maybe a one and a half turn town. Everybody really is done eating by eight o'clock mm -hmm. in Milwaukee. And another market, you'll find people starting to eat at eight, nine, eight or nine o'clock. So we, we effectively lose one whole turn in our community. And it's just something that restaurateurs have to adjust to. Mm -hmm. And uh, so yeah, you know, we, the key is holding on to good people. Our employees need to see a growth. They need to see financial growth. They need to see uh, activity in our company. And we've been able to hold on to people for a long time because of that. What are some of the future trends? Uh, I just read something that I, I had to scratch my head. I don't know where the information came from. I don't know how factual it is. But, you know, uh, the article I read said that, that within 10 to 15 years, 70% of people will be getting their food either through a, a deli delivery service or a a, a, a a carryout type okay. venue, which, you know, you see it happening in the in the 
in the brick and mortar stores, you know, and everything's going online and the young people are sitting on their couches and they go to Grubhub or Uber Eats and they're, uh, you know, they want the meal delivered right to them. And so that's something that we're looking at as a company, whether we can execute it or not. We've looked at Grubhub. We've had some good success with them. Uber Eats, you know, people don't know this, but they charge 30% to the restaurateur for the privilege of delivering your food. <laughs> and, and, you know, it just it mathematically, economic, it doesn't make sense. What, um, what does Joe Bartolotta do? Now, I, I understand you're a very hands-on manager. I, I'm told that, you know, you're in restaurants checking out things on a regular basis. But on that, that night off that you get, where, do you stay in? Do you go out? What do you do? I have an amazing wife. Her name is Jennifer. And, and many of you know her. She's really dialed into the women of this community, I swear. It's great. And she's, she's a, a really driving force in our community, and I, I'm, I couldn't be more proud of her. Um, but honestly, we have, we have three dogs at home. We just, honestly, Jeff, just like to chill out and do nothing. Do you, you cook know? or does she cook? She does a lot of the cooking. <laughs> she eats really healthy, and I hate that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I made the mistake one day of saying, honey, Everything on this plate looks like mush, and that really didn't go over well. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure she'll forgive you. <clears throat> she did. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Joe Bartolotta, Bartolotta Restaurant Groups, thanks so much for joining us at Insight. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate it. <laughs> Welcome back. It's Insight 2017. So glad to have you with us. We are joined by the two-term governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Governor Walker, Welcome. Great to be with you. So, so let's get started. Um, yesterday, you were in Kenosha with the President of the United States. I was. Um, how was that? It's always interesting. <laughs> uh, no, he was great. Actually, it's kind of fun to begin with before we got uh, into anything policy or serious. Uh, when he got off a of Marine One, of course, he landed at the airport and then took a helicopter to the parking lot of Snap On. Um, as I've done with previous presidents, I, I had a little gift for him, and so I thought the Bucks are in the playoffs. I'd get a jersey with his name on the back, as I did previously. But I added something beyond that. I, it was a little special beyond just a Bucks jersey, and I put 45, of course, on it, and his name, Trump, uh, being the 45th president. But I, I thought he might kind of like an addition to a jersey, a hat. <laughs> so I happened to get a green hat made with a special print that said, Make the Bucks great again. And uh, he just loved it. Just loved it. That's it. Now, I, I understand that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of issues where there's an interplay between Wisconsin and the federal government. And one of the big issues that I know you've been concerned about for months and months is this situation with Canada where now yeah. it's more difficult for Wisconsin dairies to sell their product in Canada. Um, you, you've actually been talking to the president about that. Yeah, I talked specifically about it. Ron Johnson and I met with him a little bit beforehand, and, and I brought that up in the great detail. That's an issue that we brought the entire congressional delegation together with. It's, it's affecting about 70 farm families from across the state. And uh, I said it's a, fair of un it's a great example of unfair trade practices. We think Canada's wrong about this. We think they're unfairly subsidizing uh, milk, particularly from Ontario. That's hurting dairy farmers here in the state of Wisconsin, as it is, for example, in New York State. So I joined yesterday with Governor Cuomo there uh, in addition to what we did with our congressional delegation. And the good news is you heard it. He talked about it. In fact, he asked how, how much of a deal should he make of it. You heard he went 
short of issuing war orders. Uh, he came out pretty strong yesterday, and the good news was uh, this morning Reince called me, and uh, this afternoon we had a, a call with uh, Reince Priebus and Jairus Kushner and a whole bunch of other folks from his team to talk about what more can be done at a minimum, at least to provide some temporary relief uh, for farming families all across the state. So this is an issue that you expect there's going to be at least some potential federal help coming? Yeah, and again, we're not looking for money as much as just help us. This is a good example of the federal government. We talk about trade. You know, the president's talked a lot about trade. Oftentimes it's about Mexico or China or other places, and Canada is one of our great trading partners. So don't get me wrong, I love trade with Canada, but on this particular issue when it comes to the dairy industry, uh, it's just not fair trade. It needs a level playing field. Our farmers can compete with anybody in the world just like our workers can compete, but it needs to be a level playing field, and I think the president and his team helping on this would take us a long ways. And, and it was great as well. On top of that, here he was at Snap-on, a great American success story right here in the state of Wisconsin, not just in Kenosha, but they manufacture just down the way in Milwaukee. They do a super job, some of the best tools in the world. I love the backdrop. Did you like the picture of the backdrop? That was all made in America by Snap-on Tools, the flags uh, that they had. It was really impressive. And I love the message he talked about. I, I had mentioned to him back in February at the White House with other governors that in addition to welfare reform and giving us other flexibilities, one of the best things he could do as president is use the largest bully pulpit in the world and, and talk about the dignity of work, talk about the skilled trades, and talk about how many different great career opportunities there are. And that's exactly what he talked about yesterday, and hat tip to him for doing that. Now, you were talking a little bit about welfare reform, and I know that's been one of the things that's at the top of your agenda. You need federal waivers. You need some federal help to get some of the things done. What do you expect is going to be coming out of Washington with some of the initiatives you'd like to put into place? I think we're going to get tremendous help, not only from this administration, but in some regards, some things we need within the Congress. And I think it's a simple concept, and it builds off of one of my great friends and one of my great mentors, Tommy Thompson. Back 20-plus years ago, he did Wisconsin Works, W-2, Welfare Reform. That was the model, for, literally, for the nation. And unfortunately, over more than two decades, this nation, and before I got in the state, had backed away from true welfare reform. We've made great strides. For example, we said with things like food stamps and other uh, public assistance areas that if you want our help, if you're an able-bodied adult, if you're able physically and mentally to work, we expect in return for public assistance, uh, you have to be employed at least 80 hours a month to get assistance and or enrolled for job training. But my goodness, the, the, Rebecca Clayfish and I were talking about this yesterday. We, we have over 95,000 job openings listed on JobCenterWisconsin.com. That's just a voluntary website. We have an unemployment rate that the new numbers come out midday on Thursday, so yeah. where we're at. Um, so I won't jump the gun and talk about that. But the I, I believe they will be better than last month. And last month was 3.7%, the lowest amount that we've had since November of the year 2000. And more people are now employed in the state of Wisconsin than ever before in our history. The, the reason that... The reason that's so important when it comes to your, you know, your question about welfare reform is this isn't about kicking people off. You know, and I, I believe in helping your neighbor when they're down and out, but public assistance for those who are able 
should be more like a trampoline than like a hammock. And the reality is for too long it's been a hammock at the federal and in some regards at the state level. We need to get people back up on their feet again and get them back into the workforce. And one of the biggest, most contentious things we had in the past with the Obama administration was asking for the ability to say, if you're on welfare, you should be able to pass a drug test. Now, going forward, we're going to have the right to test welfare recipients, whether the lights are on or not, <laughs> uh, but to uh, test we welfare, well, yeah. welfare recipients. Not because we want to kick them off, but because, and I'm sure a lot of people in this crowd and listening in today will tell you as employers, give me people who have basic job skills who can pass a drug test, and I can put anybody to work in this state, and that's what we plan on doing going forward. Let's talk a little bit about one of the contentious issues in the budget that appears to have split Republicans, and that's the whole idea of transportation. I think all of us agree that for the state to continue to grow, you, you need to have good roads. There's a lot of projects that are underway. The question is, it costs money to build these roads. So where do you see this going um, as you move forward? I think we're making real progress. The last two weeks, uh, the Robin Voss and uh, the Speaker of the Assembly and Scott Fitzgerald, the Senate Majority Leader, and I meet every Wednesday. We met uh, Wednesday of this week, we met last week. I think we're heading in the right direction. I've made it clear throughout this whole process, I'm not shy about saying, I think at a time when we have such a large reform dividend, a dividend that allows us yet again to cut taxes on income and property in this budget, a dividend that when we're completed with the budget I proposed, will provide more than $8 billion of tax relief over eight years. With all those things in mind, now is not the time to raise taxes. We, we have enough to, to provide tax relief. We have enough to put historic amounts in the K-12 education. We have enough in our budget and what we propose to put the largest amount of local road aids to fix roads and bridges and potholes that we've ever done, the most in the state highway rehab than we've ever done before. I just don't think we need to raise the gas tax. I, I believe, though, in talking with the legislative leadership, we can find a way to address some of the concerns they have. Heck, last week alone, thanks to Dave Ross, our new Secretary of Transportation, we freed up over $100 million more for, or for transportation projects in this next budget without raising the gas tax. We can do that again going forward. And I appreciate, you know, for example, State Representative Dale Coinga has been, per the Speaker's request, going out and, and working with groups and talking to us and others about ways to not raise the gas tax, but to find ways to invest more in the transportation, and we're willing to work with him and anybody else as long as there's not a gas tax increase. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get away from policy, and I want to talk about the last eight years and all the different experiences that you've had. So stick around. We'll be back. It's more with Insight 2017 from the Country Springs Hotel. We now return to Insight 2017, sponsored by Annex Wealth Management. Serta Pro Painters and Crest Cadillac. Now from the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee, once again, your host, Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. We're joined by the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Governor, all right, after you first got elected, um, you gained national attention by pushing the, the whole debate over Act 10. Everybody knows the story. It led to the protests. Has Act 10 worked? 100% it has. I mean, uh, I go to schools all the time. I get school board members who still today, many years later, give me a hug and say, thank you. This is exactly what we needed. I, get, I talk to a lot of school board members who once were school board members who say, I wish we would have had this years ago. Uh, by any number of independent reports, schools, local governments, and state government over the last six years have saved more than five billion dollars. But more important than budgetary savings, more important than the fact that property taxes are lower now than they were when we started, 
more important the fact that they've been able to recruit their savings and balance their budgets and bid out their health insurance and do these other things that have more than accounted for the changes in the budgets. It's, it's the real long-term benefit, particularly in our schools, but for all levels of government. It's been we no longer have seniority and tenure. We can now hire and fire based on merit. We can pay based on performance. That means we can put the best and the brightest in our schools, and we can pay them what they're worth to be there because we want exceptional teachers out there, but we want to be able to sort out and distinguish just like everybody else does outside of government. And we do it not only in schools, we do it in state and local governments as well. Were you surprised at the intensity of the reaction you got when you introduced it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I mean, I, you know, Jeff, you know me from, from many years past. At the county government, I had a lot of pushback being a Republican in Milwaukee County. Obviously, uh, people used to ask me, when was the last time a Republican was elected county executive? I said it was easy. Never. Uh, yeah. It just never happened before. And so I had pushback there. I used to have, even when I'd give addresses in front of the county board, I'd have protesters inside the chambers with signs during the, the budget speeches. So I wasn't completely immune uh, to, to that kind of push before, but never at this size. And what I thought was there'd be immediate pushback, but we'd right. get it through within a week or two, kind of like a lot of my friends have done in other states over the past years, and oftentimes with our help and assistance, as we did just a couple of months ago in Iowa. Uh, but, you know, after the 14 state senators left the state and went to Illinois, what we saw is the the people and the organization and the money started coming in from Washington and New York and elsewhere, and you saw things escalate like no one ever thought imaginable. What I love, though, is after we got finished, one, one of my favorite gifts was from Sean and Rachel Duffy, who gave me a bumper sticker after this was all done and everything was cleared up, and it said, One Walker Beats 14 Runners. <laughs> I, I, I know it's something that you, you don't talk a lot about, but... But, but there was a personal toll to that as well. I mean, whether it was protests at your house in Wauwatosa with your kids or your parents, um, there, there was a, a huge personal impact. You, you took a lot to, to push that through. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, not just for me, but for Tonette and our family. Our boys were both in high school, Wauwatosa East High School at the time. You know, we forget it's that many years ago. But, uh, you know, they were targeted on Facebook. Tonette had awful things written to her. I obviously had death threats and other things along the way. It wasn't just me, though. The state lawmakers got some of that. But I remember the best example of how to, like, kind of deal with this was one day at our home in Wauwatosa, I was raking leaves on a on a, uh, uh, a Sunday afternoon between church and I think it was a late game for the Packers. So two religious experiences on a Sunday. <laughs> But we're raking leaves with both my boys and one of their friends, and somebody, we're on a busy street, somebody honks, and I look over there, and the guy flips me off, and Gavin, one of the boys' friends, says, Mr. Walker, how do you put up with that? I say, you just got to be positive, you know, stay focused, do the right thing, don't get caught up in it, good things will happen. And I thought, okay, that's a nice thing to say, but <laughs> will that really happen? And I went back to raking leaves a couple minutes later. I hear honks again. I think, oh, Lord, I should have raked it, you know, leaves at night. What was I thinking here? And, and I turn and look, and now not one but two cars honking the horns, windows coming down. I expect the same thing. And both drivers give me a thumbs up. And I thought, there, that just tells you whenever, you know, whenever life flips you off, give them two thumbs up. <clears throat> we can make that a rule of life. Hey, can you walk me through your decision to run for president? Yeah, I had, I had two simple reasons. They're similar to the reasons why I've run for governor and been uh, pretty much my whole career in public service. They're Matt and Alex. Uh, I just looked at where the country was a couple years ago and 
uh, as I looked in 2009 at where the state was, and I said it's unacceptable that my children and others in their generation are going to grow up in a state and in turn a country that was headed down the wrong path. And so I thought based upon what we had gone through and what we'd accomplished and how we persevered, that we could help make a positive impact to put the state in, in the right direction. And, and for me, it was really, it wasn't a political decision as much as it was a calling. I felt all throughout my life that God has called me to do things. He's called me to run. Sometimes he's told me not to run. Both happened within the last couple of years. Uh, and, and I realized, you know, I'm now chair of the Republican Governors Association. And, and as always is the case, God is always much better at making decisions if you let him than, than we are ourselves. And I look back and realized I was called to help change America. I just wasn't called to be in the White House to do that. I'm helping other governors and, and other state leaders and, and those of us here to do the same thing. And that's how you change America, one state at a time. What was your biggest surprise about the experience? A really good surprise, Tonette and I both talked about this, is how amazing people are across this country and how very similar, despite the accents, you know, whether you're in South Carolina or New Hampshire or Nevada or Wisconsin or our neighbors in Iowa or elsewhere, People are so alike. You know, we, we have the same dreams for our children. We have the same fears and concerns about our safety and about uh, not just our personal safety with ISIS and other things out there, but our economic safety. Uh, but what I found that was so, I, I guess I shouldn't find it surprising, but it was refreshingly so, how amazing the American people are. The, the people really love their country. They they look out for their neighbor. Um more than anything, they, they just want their piece of the American dream to be that their children and grandchildren do a little bit better than they did. Um, I, I know from my experience a long time ago running for office that you, you, when you're running for office, you, you meet a lot of the people that you're running against. You're, you're at the same events all the time. Um, just between you and me, Scott, I, 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 I was just wondering, what did you think about the people? Did you become friendly with the people, the other candidates? Um, you know, what were general impressions of the people when you were all making those whistle stops? Surprisingly, yeah. I mean, the governors already knew, so there's a bond amongst us. There's now 33 Republican governors. We're pretty tight, uh, even though, you know, different backgrounds, sometimes even slightly different political beliefs. Uh, I mean, still Republican core principles, but some variations out there. But the governors I knew well and I was very close with because we had all gone through a lot. We were at the height maybe of the, of the protest level, but other governors went through some similar, if not as large or, or as spectacular things. And so the governors uh, in, the, in the mix, I knew Christie and Kasich, and I knew Jeb Bush from the past and, and others along the way. I did not know the senators as well. So I really got to know Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, Rand Paul and, uh, and um, Lindsey Graham, and, and, you know, they're actually a lot of fun. When you get behind the scenes, you know, just goofing around before a debate or sure. a gathering like that, Lindsey Graham in particular, regardless of what you think of his politics, he is one of the funniest elected officials I've ever been around. Uh, I just crack up being around him, and, and it was a lot of fun. What was it like to be on the stage with then-candidate, now-President Trump? He's exactly the same. I mean, he is, there is no per pretense. What you see is what you get. And it's one of those where it goes one extreme or the other. If he's with you, he is with you. Uh, if he's not, look out. you got a nickname. Uh, and uh, he's probably one of the fortunate ones. I, I suspended things before I got a nickname, so maybe that's a good thing. Uh, I don't have little hands. I'm not little this or that. I'm not low energy. I don't have any of that stuff. Uh, but, uh, but no, but, but the amazing thing is, I mean, think about this. So I ran... In the primary where he was running, I got out, made it clear what I thought people should do. I ended up helping Ted Cruz win the primary. 
here in the state of Wisconsin. But but I was always been very careful. I abide by the the Reagan principle, the eleventh commandment, that while I made my opinions clear, even to the point of of helping Ted Cruz win the primary, I never once attacked the eventual nominee of the party and now the president. And so it's interesting how even though you'd say, well, you weren't really with him until the very end. Well, once he was the nominee, even, I used to joke, he wasn't my first pick. I was my first pick. Um, <laughs> but he wasn't even my pick in the primary. But when I looked along the way, and I think for a lot of people uh, listening in and watching here tonight, uh, for me it was clear that, that I had to do everything in my power, mainly for no other reason, and there were many, but particularly for the Supreme Court, which, thank God, I mean, I think one of the most... Uh, reassuring things that I did the right thing by supporting Donald Trump and Mike Pence to be the president and vice president. If they do nothing else with Neil Gorsuch being on the United States Supreme Court, which is a lasting... Remember, Scalia was nominated to the bench when I was in high school. So that just tells you how important and how long-term that decision is. I think he's done, uh, done and will do many other good things, but that alone was worth it. When we come back, we have a surprise guest. We're going to hear some stories about Scott Walker that nobody has ever heard. So stick around. <laughs> Insight 2017, live from the Country Springs Hotel. It's Insight 2017 from the Country Springs Hotel. We've been talking with Governor Scott Walker. One of the things we like to do at Insight is just to kind of go behind the headlines. And I've always figured if you want to go behind the headlines and find out about somebody, what you do is you talk yeah. to their spouse. And we are pleased to be joined by the first lady of the state of Wisconsin, Tanette Walker. Welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. So how long have you two been married? Uh, we have 24 years. Okay. When, yes. when you first got married, did you recognize what you were signing up for? <laughs> I absolutely did not. Um, I actually, he did tell me that he was, um, was going to be in politics, but I didn't really know what that meant. And I actually come from a whole family of Democrats, so I really didn't know what it was going to mean. They, they aren't anymore. <laughs> they are. <laughs> what, was, what was the biggest surprise that you had when you found yourself suddenly state representative, county executive in Milwaukee County, and then governor. What's been the biggest surprise? I'm not, I don't know if there's been a huge surprise, but I think that, um, I, I think the thing that I realized was it, it's um, a whole encompassing family thing. It isn't just him, governor. It's Matt and I and, and Alex all in this together. So I didn't realize what that was going to be like. And that's really, um, you know, sometimes more difficult than others, but uh, good, some good, some bad. But it is all-encompassing. Yeah. Well, we were, the governor and I were talking about the, the battle over Act 10. And it's one thing, when you're in politics yourself, you kind of sign up for that. You, you know that there's going to be all the, the, the haters that are out there and the stuff. In many respects, I, I know it's perhaps even harder on the family members. Um, you know, how did you get through that whole thing? Well, Act 10 was di very difficult, but the boys were in high school. So for me, it was very important that their lives didn't change because of Act 10 in the sense that um, everything kind of stayed the same. It was all stable. The house was exactly like it always was. If you were inside our home, you'd never know that Act 10 was going on outside unless they were protesting outside. And then, of course, but 
it was, you know, I, Mrs. Obama uh, said the statement about, you know, when they go low, we go high. Well, I had been doing that for years. So when she said that, I was like, yeah, I know what that's like. <laughs> right. You know, okay, we can do that. Right. Um, but that's really what was important was our boys, that they didn't change in any way. And we got lucky. They're great. And it, and it helped. I mean, a hat tip to their... The school, they went to Wauwatosa East. Nick Hughes, who's the principal, public school. Obviously, there were some people there that didn't agree with, with my decision on this. You would never have told that in the school. The teachers, the principal, the fellow students couldn't have been more spectacular. And, you know, thankfully, it was years that we'd been involved, both Tanette and I, and our kids were all active in school. But that helped tremendously. Now, Tanette, we, we, we see your, your husband on the news a, a lot. I know that there's stuff that goes on between husbands and wives. There's got to be some, some little thing he does that drives you absolutely nuts. Oh, Wanna my share? gosh, we don't have enough time on the radio. Are the lights going to go off? Ah. <laughs> well, he's a great husband. He's, he's wonderful. You know, he's very... Um, He's very attentive. I hear a butt coming he's, here. There, there's a butt. Yeah, there's all, right? yeah, of course there's a butt in there. You know, I wish, you know, I wish that he maybe, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. I can't say it on the... <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, Al, we did an interview once, and Alex was like, is there anything that your parents embarrass you with? And he goes, yeah, Dad sings karaoke, and he thinks he's good. <laughs> But he is good at that. He's very good <laughs> at karaoke. She defends me on that, He's which is so funny. He's very good at karaoke. You know, we, um, you know, obviously through the years, I wish maybe he would have made dinner more. You know, he doesn't make dinner. He knows, he says, I eat it pretty good. I, I can make a pizza, and I can scramble eggs. And, and I said, well, what if it, something happens to me? And he said, well, we'll love having pizza. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things, Tanette, is oh, over the years, You've really carved out a, a role for yourself, um, independent of, of Scott's, you know, a, as the First Lady. And I know you've got some initiatives that you're really very proud of. Yeah, I really um, have been working very hard for the last six years on something called Fostering Futures. And it's really a way of looking at children and family who live in toxic stress each and every day. And there's something called trauma-informed care that can make their lives better. We can't change the way their brain looks because really toxic straight to stress changes the brain, but we can teach them resiliency and we can give them um, hope for um, really a good, successful and prosperous life. So that's what I've been working on. And it's been wonderful and, and that's really what his job gives me is this platform. Right. right. Um, speaking of, of that, uh, we've got an election for governor coming up, uh, well, in about a year and a half or so. Um, any, no. Any, <laughs> no. No what? <laughs> first of all, let, let me hear it. First of all, uh, governor, I mean, uh, you, you said that you're going to announce a decision after the budget's done. Is that still your timetable? Yeah, absolutely. If there's no term limits in Wisconsin, although Tommy doesn't, Thompson doesn't have to worry, I'm not going to run for four terms. It would just be a question of a third. Uh, I do have a term limit. It's called the Tonette term limit. So if we do this, it'll be this one or that'll be it. Although I kid Tommy, he won four times, four terms. If we win next November, should we run, it'll be four times just in four <laughs> less years than it took Tommy to, uh, to win it when you count the recall. But no, I mean, I, the simple answer is, yeah, the timeline's right. But, but I, I said the simple response I when people ask me if I'm going to run is, when you've got more people employed than ever before, when I'm more optimistic about the state than I've ever been before, why wouldn't I run? Um, it's just too exciting a time not to. Okay, Mrs. Walker, um, I, I guess what, 
I mean, obviously, there are sacrifices that you make, and there's sacrifices that the family makes. I mean, how do you hear? I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, I've never said no before. He's run for <laughs> the assembly, for county executive, for president, for president <laughs> governor a few times. So I've never said no before. I'm not about to start saying no now. It, it just wouldn't make any sense. Um, but. You know, I love the fact that we have work to do. The nice thing for us, too, we've had along the way a group of friends that our kids grew up with. We have other friends outside of politics, actually, some that are out and in. I, I see Brad Courtney, for example, in the audience. Brad's the state party chair, but we've known Brad for 27 years. Hard mm -hmm. to imagine. But it's great to stay connected with people that were friends long before we were governor and then to make new ones along the way because that just keeps your reality check along the way as to what's going on. Do you have, you said, regardless of a decision on third term, that there will not be a fourth term, that you're thinking now. Do the two of you have a vision as to what your life is going to be like after politics? <laughs> or or have no. you just considered I'm just going to ride Harley. My Harley yeah. is long and as well, far as I we can. We kind of live in this very tiny, small space. So um, <laughs> what I say to him is, like, we'll never buy a home again. We're, we're always going to live, like, in a one-bedroom apartment. No, no, it's even worse. You've got to get into this with her. This is your good insight for tonight on Insight 2017. She likes this. What is it called? HGTV. It's called Little Houses. Tiny. She doesn't even have a closet as little as those little houses. I, I said there is no way we're going to get crammed into a little. I'd be fine. I just need a trailer in the back of my Road King, and I'd, I'd be set. But Tonette says we're going to get a little house. And uh, I think probably what we'll end up doing is get a condo somewhere in the third ward so we can go to Summerfest, right, Smiley? That'd be good to see yeah, the great act for the right. 50th along the way. And, and uh, somewhere like that or, or maybe down in the Hart Park area by Wauwatosa, but somewhere in the Milwaukee area. Uh, that's where our friends are. That's where our family is. And we love it. Well, we love having you around. Scott Walker, Tanette Walker, thanks for joining us on in Insight 2017. Thanks. The governor and the first lady of the state of Wisconsin. That concludes our presentation of Insight 2017. I want to thank you all very much for coming out to the Country Springs Hotel. Hope to see everybody next year for Insight 2018. I want to say a very special thank you to all the guests we had this evening, Governor Walker and his wife, Tanette Walker, four justices from the state Supreme Court, Attorney General Brad Schimmel talking about opioids, Larry McCarran and Wayne Larrabee, the voice of the Green Bay Packers, and of course Don Smiley, Bob Babish, Joe Bartolotta. I thought it was a really interesting, diverse crowd, which reflects, of course, the, the background of the WTMJ audience. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Um, again, we hope to see you again next year. Thank you all very much for coming out. I want to also say a special thank you to our sponsors, Crest Cadillac, Serta Pro Painters, and Annex Wealth Management, and again, the gifts on your table are courtesy of Annex Wealth Management. The tickets from Summerfest are courtesy of Summerfest. Thank you all very much for coming out. Drive home safely. This is Insight 2017.